I think we're growing on average about 200% a quarter. That's a lot. It's a lot. Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Bank Tech Ventures, the first strategic investment fund designed by the community banking industry for community bank innovation and investment. BankTech identifies leading products and technologies for community banks and works with the founders and management teams of those companies to maximize the impact for those community banks and their businesses as well. If you're a bank looking to innovate and invest in your future or a founder who wants to work with community banks, reach out to BankTech Ventures, banktechventures.com. I'm super excited. Uh, this is, I think, long overdue, but I'm super excited to have Howard Mackler with me today. And I've had a great pleasure over the last year of working closely with him. And we have really become friends through that. And I think that has been uh, just a, a great addition to my life. And I am so appreciative. He is such a dynamic, energetic, serial entrepreneur and really, my only disappointment is that we didn't meet earlier in each other's lives because we've had a, a lot of fun uh, over the last year. He currently, and we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about his current venture, Innovation Refunds, which he was the co-founder and CEO of, and has quickly become the most visible and scalable provider of payroll tax refunds for small businesses around the country. Um, we're going to talk a lot about that and the huge impact he is having with all the businesses that they are serving. Um, but this wasn't his first startup. Previously, he was the founder of Howie's Game Shack, which he scaled uh, in, really did a lot of interesting technology innovations in uh, early days of PC gaming. We'll talk a little bit about that, I'm sure. Um, he co-founded a really innovative real estate fintech platform called Rich Uncles. And he's also worked closely with, with really interesting people like Shaq and Kareem on some of their charitable endeavors. Just lived a very uh, interesting and uh energetic life. And I think that is one of the, the words that I always feel like exists around Howard is a lot of energy. Thanks for joining me today. It is truly my pleasure. And you're right. This is long overdue. We have been talking about this for a while. And uh, it's really a pleasure to support you and to be here together on your podcast. Well, let's start with the founding story of Innovation Refunds. I think it's a, a fascinating one. I, you know, we talk about the term rocket ship when it comes to startups. This is literally one of those. You just started it not even two years ago. So how did we get here, Howard? <laughs> you know, like much of life, it's a story, right? right. There it is. And, 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 and one of the things that I've learned is that we're not as in control as we think. Mm. Sometimes you can push against the universe or you can choose to take a breath and keep your eyes open and allow the universe to come to you. Mm -hmm. As you know, I was the co-founder of a public REIT. It was the first online fintech REIT that both redeemed shares and issued shares ourselves. We were a full market maker. We didn't sell through an exchange, even though we were a public, a public REIT. My partner was the 
founder of uh, CBRE or the chairman of CBRE. We had decided to raise capital of all places in China. And so I was working in China, raising capital when COVID hit. And literally overnight, the entire project that I was working on came to an end, Mm -hmm. shut down. And I was home deciding what my next venture was going to do. The REIT had been acquired by a much larger REIT. So that was wonderful. It was a wonderful Mm -hmm. exit. Uh, And I was meeting with a friend of mine who owns an insurance wholesaling company. And he was giddy because he had a desk full of checks from the U.S. Treasury. And they were a number of checks. They added up to maybe $400,000. It was quite a bit of money. He was explaining to me that he received this as part of something called R&D. I said, what is that? And I went on to learn that the government has many programs out there, one of them being R&D or R&E. And it's surprising, but many businesses will qualify for some money back on that program. And so I just was interested in why my friend was so happy, started researching. And after I became very intrigued with it, I ended up essentially acquiring a company that had been providing the service of processing these R&D claims for mostly CPA firms. And from that point, we ended up building a company. Initially, uh, when when you first joined, uh, when we first started talking, we were focused on R&D, if you recall. It wasn't mm-hmm. even on ERC. And then ERC really presented itself and we pivoted and, and ERC became our currently our, our main focus. Oh, that's a story. It is. Just for the audience's sake, talk about ERC. This is a very timely program. Not everyone knows about it, as we know. So maybe just a quick introduction to what is it? Why has this become such an important program for small businesses in this country? Sure. If we remember back when the pandemic was really raging, Congress passed the CARES Act. And -hmm. the CARES Act most notably produced the PPP program. Mm-hmm. When PPP was uh, written, it, there was another program right alongside, some call it the brother, the sister, and that was called the Employee Retention Credit, ERC. At the time when the CARES Act was released, a business could choose, but they couldn't take both. The PPP had a clear line of sight through your bank. It was very mm-hmm. simple to process, where the ERC was much murkier in terms of understanding how you would actually access the funds because it requires you to modify or amend your payroll tax document, which typically you would think of your CPA, but CPAs don't typically deal with payroll. Mm -hmm. So it just wasn't something on their radar screen. So it just, it kind of fell into no man's land where it remained until Congress came back and said, can we do something to uh, help business? And one of the recommendations, which they ultimately accepted was to change the rules of the program so that a business who took PPP could still access these other funds in this other program. Fast forward today, when we're having such economic uncertainty and challenges, it's like a fresh shot of adrenaline to be able to access these funds that were previously created for the pandemic relief, but are wonderful today uh, to help businesses who survived the pandemic and are surviving today's challenges. Thank you for that overview. And we'll get we'll go probably just another level deeper in a minute about some of the process around this. I think you know you gave a, a good intro. But before that, 
let's let's talk a little bit about just small businesses in general. You know, the, the, to your point, this has been a big shot in the arm for uh, many small businesses in this country at a time when they need it, just like PPP was at the time that it it came out and really helped millions of small businesses in this country. You've built a bunch of businesses. You've been involved in small businesses. I have too throughout much of our careers. T- talk about your view on just small business in this country. Yeah. Well, first of all, I've, oh, I'm have i a lifelong employer, never mm-hmm. an employee mm-hmm. at a company I didn't own, own or, or found. Sure. Um, I, it's a tough time. Business is... the. To be an entrepreneur requires a level of grit that's hard to believe because mm-hmm. if you if you look at it on paper, it's a bad deal. It's, you know, I mean, how many I've done, I don't know, 10 of these different businesses over the years. Some worked, some were really successful, some didn't. Mm-hmm. So it's a risky venture to be an entrepreneur and a business owner. It, it feels like there's a, a lot of headwinds right now mm-hmm. for business. But yet this is the fabric of our country. This is what makes America what it is, right? The way I describe business, it's problem, solution, problem, solution. That's business. And so if you're the kind of person that solves problems or you like puzzles, if you will, different versions, Mm -hmm. I'm not a puzzle person, but I like business puzzles. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's, I couldn't have it any other way. A true, a, a real business owner is just driven internally to create. I find that there's creators and managers. Mm-hmm. They tend to be very different. I'm a creator. I'm successful now because I've learned to surround myself around wonderful managers. Instead of trying to be the perfect manager, I can be a more capable creator, which is sure. more of my superpower. Yeah, yeah. So that it, it makes a ton of a ton of sense. And and you know, I I always say company building is a team sport. And, and yes. keep, you know, knowing the various roles that uh, you can play and you need others to play is is what ultimately does help create those winning teams. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd also add a couple other things that we've learned. One, uh, egos don't work. If you even have a person that has a desire to put their ego out there, it's going to poison the team. Just absolute rules is we don't have egos. And so we can be very blunt and very transparent with each other. We don't hide bad news. We, we address everything immediately. We, we try to always hire above your capability. This is a fun one to try to teach people is mm-hmm. you have to hire somebody actually better than you. And that's not the tendency. Mm-hmm. But if you pull it off, it, it's unbelievable. People actually start looking for people who can actually add more to the equation that they perceive that they're, you know, and, and it starts really compounding. I mean, we today we're sitting at a little over 800 full-time employees and contractors. Amazing. Amazing. Well, that's a good transition um, because you were not there when we started working together. So no. as I, as I said <laughs> earlier, you know, we, we partnered on yeah. this pretty early on. Um, and, and I think we agreed, you know, both our group and you agreed that community banks have that reach have that brand even and that trust with small businesses in their respective communities and this was a a great way for you to reach them i mean just from your perspective what was it about community banks that excited you it was the relationship the trusted relationship that they have 
We take the high road, as you know. We do everything the right way. We use tax attorneys. We don't cut corners. So for us to be able to partner with banks, we viewed banks as being the kind of the gold standard. If a bank's going to say it's okay, they've done their homework, and you're you're doing everything as well as intelligent people can test and ask all the right questions and follow up and due diligence and ensure that everything is being done at a level that would be appropriate for a bank. For for me, it was it was a great challenge for us to live up to to be able to always rise to that that level of of capability, and and to be able to have introductions to banks uh, into their customers, and then finally, to be able to give back to the banks themselves because I grew up in a small town in Connecticut, moved out mm-hmm. to California, now I'm out in Florida. Community banks are the fabric of America in many ways, yet they're losing much of what their 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 competitive advantage has historically been the relationship itself but as the product offerings have become less competitive business owners they won't necessarily put that relationship above the competitive offering i wouldn't at some mm-hmm. point i break and i i need a better offering right mm-hmm. at some point so so being able to help community banks to overcome that and to be able to not only stay relevant, but to have a competitive advantage themselves. They, I, I personally, I do business, my biz, my company banks with community banks. Mm-hmm. So I live with community banks. I can tell you that when I needed a letter of credit in 48 hours, I got it. I wouldn't have been able to do that at Chase or mm-hmm. Bank of America, but I can with a community bank. Sure. Great, so a lot great of example. To me. And if you look back, you know, during PPP, uh, community banks did twice the volume of PPP loans to their market share. And they they helped businesses that weren't banking with them in many parts of the country that came to them because they couldn't get that service at the time that they needed it. And so to your point, being able to demonstrate once again that they're offering something that the rest of the market just isn't paying attention to uh, at this point in time, like ERC is something that I think has been a, a great partnership. Is that a fair characterization? Oh, a hundred percent. And I, and in fact, I can give you some examples of that. So let me first start out by saying we had an idea that we could use direct mail to help find uh, not only ERC prospects from the business community in the neighborhood of our of our banking partners, but that we felt it would actually be successful in generating new depo- new accounts for them as well. So mm-hmm. we just we just have been testing this with six different banks. Uh, and in, and this is just in our pilot program. We've generated for these six banks over thirty three hundred leads. It's resulted in two hundred and twenty one qualified applications, but here's the part that's so interesting. So here's one bank, Falcon Bank, 21% of the applicants who applied for ERC with Falcon Bank became new customers. Mm. Now that really excites me. Mm -hmm. To be able to help the bank to be able to procure new business, new customers, um, really is, I think, a real win-win for everybody. Absolutely. So you now have about 100 banks that you're working with? Howard, what have you learned from working with banks now that you maybe didn't previously appreciate or know? Well, I would say that in general, the program together has been very successful. Mm -hmm. We're very pleased by what we've seen so far. We've already generated um, uh, over a quarter 
billion dollars in submit submitted refunds to the IRS. We have over 50 million of it that's been physically received already. Mm-hmm. Uh, the money is coming in every single day. We've paid out well over we paid out over a million of dollars in 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 fees to the banks. Um, I would say that all in all, I, I feel that it's been a validation that the relationship with Bank Tech Ventures and the relationship with the banks has material value for us and for the banks. So I'm very pleased about that. On the flip side, what we've learned is the reason the direct mail program is working is because we it was our idea and we've initiated it and we're implementing it. They, they As a general statement, the banks are not excellent at marketing. Mm-hmm. They're not very sophisticated. The banks that work with us have a desire and that desire means everything to us mm-hmm. because we have tools in our toolbox. We can't share it with a bank that's not interested. But sure. if they're interested in the tools in the box, we've got a whole bunch. And so I guess the first phase was just learning how to operate with, within the bank system. Now mm-hmm. the next phase is things like this direct mail, where we're becoming far more proactive to bring the expertise of, I mean, the people that work for us come from places like Google, Airbnb, Snap. I mean, um, oh, I mean, it just goes on and on. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the list is shocking, the capability set of the folks that work for us. And we're bringing their best practices to help the banks on their journey. And probably not typically people that would work in community banks historically. Correct. Yeah, correct. Yeah, especially without a, a heavy tech focus. These are heavy tech type people um, analyzing data. I mean, it's, it's a level of sophistication that um, would not typically be found um, in a community bank. But we can bring that capability to harness for them. And can more banks still sign up to be partners with you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have... So it's very interesting. There has been some reinterpretation of the rules as of lately, and it now appears that there is a little bit more time than we originally thought. So everything moves so fast, Carrie, there's mm-hmm. even new news. And and it may be that there's an additional, up to an additional year even, where mm-hmm. these claims can be filed. So the, the net net is we have time. Awareness is growing. We just finished a survey of business owners and from our data, uh, about sixty percent of the businesses are ju- are still not aware of this, Amazing. which is surprising. Amazing. So there's still is time. Um, best way is to reach out uh, to your team and get introduced. And um, this is it, the programs now. As as I said, it sounds like it's it's working well with dozens and dozens of banks around the country, and um, there's nothing that precludes others from working with you. No, absolutely not. We um our our toolbox is uh, getting more wonderful tools added. Uh, the big thing that we're adding now is the ability to harness financial institutions who will uh, essentially purchase the credit so that the both the customer and the bank can see the deposits in their account much, much faster, mm-hmm. uh, which is a huge benefit to everybody. Um, and we're in the process now of raising our, our first billion dollars, our first, our first B billion to fund um, the um, what we're calling fast pay program. Uh, so that's a big, a big, huge benefit that we see that's just now launching. We're also 
to just continuing to make meaningful upgrades everywhere we can in, in sophistication, in credibility. We don't mind spending money on resources that um, improve our product and improve the perception of the product out there. So I think we're a really good partner to have in that regard. We, 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 we don't mind investing in resources. So you mentioned the insurance company that kind of helped kick this idea off a little bit. Share share a couple other examples of the type of companies that are benefiting from getting these payroll tax credits back. Well, it's it's the list is it, there is no specific category of business. We see it ranging everywhere from charities and nonprofits, mm-hmm. religious groups couldn't have congregation during COVID, mm-hmm. couldn't have their people together. Group meetings is one of the absolute um, uh, ways in which you can qualify is the inability to have group meetings. So you know, all, think about all of the nonprofits and, and, and religious groups out there, um, professional services of all kinds, um, everything from a, a, an adult daycare business, you know, adult daycare. And, uh, and, and the owner of that company donated the refund back to his caregivers as a Mm. bonus. Amazing. Amazing. Retail stores of all shapes and sizes, restaurants. And what amazes me is the stories about how this money is being used. In truth, the money is, the business receives this money like income. It's mm-hmm. literally like income. And what's the what's the negative and what's the benefit? Well, the negative is you pay taxes on income. So there's taxes that you have to pay on whatever profit you have at the end of the year. And this is sure. part of your part of your part of your income. Um, but the benefit is that you can spend the money any way you want. It's not like PPP where it was it was prescribed that you had to put it into this sure. or that. So in truth, if people wanted to take the money and go on a vacation, there'd be nothing wrong with that. But that's not the stories we hear every single day. I don't hear about vacations. I hear about people crying that that were that this money has meet has meaningful impact to them, their ability to keep employees on payroll, their mm-hmm. ability to buy equipment. The stories that we hear really touch the heart of uh, of, of myself and frankly the politicians who passed this, who 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 hoped that this money would find its way into the hands of business owners who would put it to proper good use to grow their business. Well, this money, which is technically COVID relief funds, are showing up at a moment in time where they need it mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And so some of that money is, is an absolute lifeline. Some of that money is going to expansion. But the stories that we hear are all um, heartfelt in that the money is doing the good that I believe Congress intended when they passed this. And and those stories and and the data, obviously, that you're you're also collecting through this will really help, and I think help uh, help validate that that it was well intended, and in this case, uh, seemingly well executed with partners like you as well. Yeah, thank you. And 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 we're also hoping to take a playbook from our success. So uh, I'll share this with you. It's kind of interesting. The reason that we exist, really, there's a number of reasons. BTV, you've had a you've been instrumental in, in us being here. The other thing that was, I'd say the number one thing was the ability to establish 
a mechanism to finance our accounts receivable. Our AR comes from business owners. We don't charge anything until the client receives the refund, which can take six months, eight months, 10 months. Mm -hmm. How would we possibly grow? And the answer is I focused originally on solving that. But even before BTV was involved, I had solved the uh, puzzle of how do you find institutional money willing to lend against your AR? Mm -hmm. That didn't exist I had to create it. We created paperwork. We created a program. We created a structure. We brought in participants. We found our own participants. You personally have referred some of the participants. So thank you. Sure. So it's been a big success. Um, but nonetheless, what I would say is having the ability to find creative financing for accounts receivable, for other business needs, I think that's going to be one of the things that we're going to be able to provide to businesses in the future is to how do you get creative to help a business to find capital where nobody is really offering them capital mm. or not, or at least not on a main, mainstream way that business owners are aware of it. And it's not just about financing AR, it's about multiple ways that are just creative and not what you typically hear business is talking about. Sure. And and bringing that all the way down to Main Street is a, a really compelling idea. And because of the data we have, we know a lot about these businesses and we know there's a lot of them that are bankable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Well, good, good segue to Howard. One of the things I talk a lot about is how great entrepreneurs will typically just dig a little deeper into this problem. Uh, and often yeah. when you go a couple levels deeper, you uncover the true opportunity that's out there. And remarkably, not as many people do this as can. Um, you know, in this case of ERC, I think a lot of people on the surface felt like this was over. Right. You talk to a lot of accountants, as an example, and they said, oh, that program's passed, it's expired, whatever it may be. What what do you feel like you did in going a little deeper to really go, holy cow, there's really a lot more here than what most people realize? We were featured recently in an article in The Wall Street Journal and the reporter, a longtime Wall Street Journal business reporter, Ruth Simon, called me and she said, you know, I was very involved writing about PPP and I thought this thing was over and I'm driving and I hear your voice and it's not over. Can you tell me what's going on? So, yes, I think that one of the hallmarks of an entrepreneur is that we dig deeper. So when I met with my insurance friend and he showed me these checks, uh, why did I go exploring to find out? I couldn't tell you. I mean, it was just my, my curiosity and I felt like, Maybe something is there. Maybe something is there. And I and then I just kept digging. I'll, I'll give you a really quick story. So I'm working on an office in downtown Miami, and uh, anyway, we I was having an issue, and the and the designer said, "Have you been on the roof?" I said, "I have not. No." So well, we should go on the roof and look. I said, "You know, you're right. Let's go." Well, we go up to the roof with the building engineer who we who's opening doors that he tells us have not been opened in 20 years. <laughs> and and do you want to know what we found? 20 years ago, somebody contemplated a helipad and a private elevator shaft from that roof into my office suite, and nobody knew. 
And because we went poking around and asking questions where nobody had bothered to ask for 20 years, we found a private elevator shaft leading to a private place on the roof for our office simply because we went digging and digging when nobody went digging. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the prize that I'll get is a wonderful rooftop deck. And, and it's a wonderful story just on if you dig and dig and dig, you may find nothing and you may find a rooftop deck. That's right. But doing the work, I think the, the, the summary, at least from my perspective, is doing the work is available to everyone. You just have right. to do it. People ask, how did you find out about this program? How did you know? Yeah, it's it was, it's all out there. I'm just the one that decided to go digging around and pull, I don't know, I think it was about 300000 out of my pocket. I, I invested the first $300,000 myself for proof of concept. I didn't ask anybody for money until I mm-hmm. believed it myself. So that's a, that's ex- extreme belief in uh, entrepreneurship and, and belief in yourself. But yeah, I think that if people want gold, they got to dig. That's Great summary. You've had a a number, I mean, you mentioned 10 earlier businesses you've been involved with. You've had a number of companies. As you look back, what are the elements in your mind that excite you to start a company? Well, first of all, I have to really, I have to believe in it to a level that creates incredible passion within me. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was the video game business. I just loved because I had a safe place for young people to go and it was clean and it was fun. And we got to teach them things like don't curse all the time. And like, we actually, it was wonderful. And and mm-hmm. we did great. We, we grew, we expanded. My partner is the CEO of Cisco systems. Um, so they all have that. The, the REIT was the ability to work with the chairman of CBRE to give um, your assistant, the ability to invest right alongside the chairman of the largest real estate company in the world. That mm-hmm. motivated me. Mm-hmm. that the average person could have access to this kind of investment expertise. Um, so all of the business, I was in vertical access wind turbines in a partnership with Best Buy because we could bring electricity costs down. Unfortunately, physics got in the way and the, mm-hmm. the turbines didn't produce enough power. Wonderful example of even a partner like Best Buy, but we couldn't overcome the physics of what we call a small wind, the little mm-hmm. turbines on buildings, and they just don't produce enough, frankly. So, but it's always about a passion to solve a problem. It's it's the money, the, 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 the spreadsheet, the performa has to make sense or there's no business, sure. but the real passion isn't the dollars. The dollars are a byproduct of the passion and the product. Yeah, the passion probably is what drives you to do the work. And no question. And yeah, that that's that's great. Well, you you talked a little bit about this earlier. I really like how you think about team and culture. And I know that's something that's evolved over your career with all the experiences. Do you have any kind of guiding principles beyond some of the things that, that we talked about previously? There's the old philosophy of you kind of starve everybody out, give them only at the minimal amount, don't Mm -hmm. over anything, Um, don't be overly generous. It's designed to create this, I don't know, austerity kind of, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've never found that it works. I know it never motivated me when I wasn't making enough to pay my bills. I was never motivated. I was just hurting. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I think one is to pay people fairly to understand that if, if people aren't able to make their ends meet, it's going to be terribly distracting for them and they're not going to be high producers. So one is to just get the financial house in order. People have to be able to survive and be comfortable enough that they're not distracted. Uh, and, and then to the, the next extreme of that is a wealth mentality and to actually bring people on that have a wealth mentality, which is a whole nother level of success. Mm. Um, and, and I know I said this earlier, but really it's hiring people better than you without ego. It's really the key is you have to be able to bring on extraordinary people. You also have to allow them to have autonomy while certainly being involved and, and such, but you have to be able to trust people and, and hand the reins over and you'll make a mistake and you'll fire somebody, of course, um, as so you have to be aware of that. But other than that, you have to, trust and rely on your team and empower your team and hold yeah. them accountable. Sure. Oh, so I think there's a lot of great, great principles in there. Well, this company, you know, Innovation Refunds, this company is growing at a rate that I would say very few people ever experience that pace and rate of growth. Um, and even in, I think in your prior companies, um, while you've had some great success, I don't know that anything has grown this rapidly so what what uh, new adjustments no. have you had to learn or or uh adjust i mean in, in this state yeah we, we i think we're growing on average about 200 percent a quarter mm-hmm. that's a lot it's a lot it's a lot and uh and it's not slowing down and it's continuing at that velocity uh it's getting comfortable with breaking things and reimagining and re-engineering. We're not bashful about retooling, making adjustments. Um, Things that seem perfectly logical at a certain volume just don't scale, even though you think that they would or should, Mm -hmm. they don't. So it's being very flexible, being very nimble, being able to pivot. Um, was what so I, I received a call from one of my leaders and and uh, she was recounting a story to me with the president of the company where a mistake had been made and without flinching he raised his hand and he said I take responsibility for that and it wasn't just words it was the way he said it it was creating this air this air of comfortableness that we we're going to make mistakes we're not bashful about it that's okay mm-hmm. an error is made that's okay admit it quickly so that you can evaluate it with the rest of your smart peers and then pivot as, as quickly as possible. So we do a lot of pivoting. We're not schizophrenic, <laughs> but mm-hmm. we're not afraid to pivot. Both are true. And that's really hard on an organization because pivoting really, uh, it, 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 it scares people if they don't understand all of the reasons why, and it's hard to convey all the reasons why. Um, I have another one too. This is something that Ray Werda, CBRE chairman, taught me is in in companies where you communicate a lot, people still don't feel you communicate enough. Yes. They never feel it. And and this has been a big wake up for us is we go out of our way to communicate, 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 and then communicate again because people are thirsty, so thirsty for it. Mm-hmm. And they respond well. Yes. But I think that's a great leadership principle. One of the ones I, the way I describe it is I say about the time that I'm really tired of saying it is just when people are starting to listen. Yeah. So you just got to keep going. 
You're, to your point, that's a, I think that's a great one. I have another one. Okay, go I ahead. One more. Go. There are no secrets in a company. So this is a really big one. If you create a comp plan for some person, if you do something that is a one-off, I promise you, just a matter of what day on the calendar, that comes back to be a discussion with other people. So um, we're, we're really careful now about, about not getting ourselves in a position where we're going to have to talk about it later. In fact, I'd rather be the one to be transparent about everything because I know whatever it is that whatever you and I talk about today, Carrie, someone's going to know about in 10 minutes. It's just the way it is. So if you know that, it makes everything quite easy. That's right. Yeah, I think that's a great one. Personally, you know, again, growing a company as rapidly, that also pushes you as the founder and CEO to have to keep you know, evaluating yourself and evolving as a, a CEO of a company that's changing? How, how are you working on that? Really good question. So I believe that you reach a point in a business where you have to choose between working in your business or on your business, and you no longer can do both. Mm -hmm. And for me, I had a really big internal process that occurred uh, three months ago. And it was, I, I had help from you from the from my other board members encouraging me to see this and as a result I recruited somebody to run the day-to-day -day business uh, the person who's actually you know, the president of the company Skip uh, Skip Smith does a fabulous job he's a, a, what I would call a true manager and he allows me to not be in the day-to-day -day, but he can bring me in as he needs to help with decisions without me having to be in the weeds. And that, that meaningfully has changed my ability to manage. And this is advice that uh, you've given me, Carson has given me, president of SunWest Bank gave me, that uh, early on when we first started was that my job would be to stay above it all and to be able to see the problems before other people are seeing them. The long-range vision is really, in many ways, my primary task is, I mean, they call me Gandalf sometimes. And mm. they think, how does how did you pull that? It's just because I was far enough removed to see the danger before you or to see the opportunity before you. And I was able to make some magic happen. But it's really because of the structure and, and my willingness to give up the reins that um, from of day to day that has allowed me to be more successful. So you're right, personally, and 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 it's and it's a constant process of reinventing yourself and uh, determining what you need to change and who you need to bring in to be able to support. That's been my process. Thank you for sharing that. I think that will be very valuable to a lot of people. A uh, couple final questions. So. Along maybe similar lines, what advice would you have? You know, this is a time in our economic cycle where a lot of people are now recontemplating becoming an entrepreneur. Maybe they uh, were recently let go from a company and they're deciding, do I want to go into another company or do I want to start a business? So if you think about other people thinking about or just starting a company, what other advice would you have? Uh, it the cash flow management or cash flow modeling. At the end of the day, the reason businesses die is they run out of capital. So managing the capital is the key uh, to, I think, in, if you're going to make that leap, make sure that all of the numbers are adding up and that you find some trusted folks that are, are mavens at Excel who can confirm that you're sane and that there's no fundamental error in that you're not going to be um, starving yourself 
unfortunately, most entrepreneurs have had the uh, ramen for dinner experience. That's all mm-hmm. I can afford today. <laughs> but that would be uh, number one. Number two, I would say you have to follow your heart. Mm. If, if Whether you succeed or fail is kind of secondary, really, because you have to follow your heart. If not, you're going to be dead. I mean, you're alive. So if your heart feels like you want to pursue something and, and, you're, and you feel passion for it, passion is an amazing force. It can move mountains. So good. All right, last question. Let's let's look ahead five years. What do you think the biggest impact innovation refunds has had in our world as, as we look ahead five years from now? Well, we at that point have helped, I'm going to say, in the $10 billion of refunds to businesses. Um, I think that's a reasonable. We've we've already returned two billion, two point two billion to businesses. I think we'll be over ten billion before that ends, and we will have transitioned into a company that has a host of services products to support businesses. Uh, not necessarily financial, but some financial. Not necessarily tax credits, because maybe some tax credits. It's going to be a host of services that really add value in a meaningful way to businesses. Howard, thank you. I always enjoy our conversations. It's so fun to have you on the podcast. Thanks for sharing the innovation refund story. It's been a great adventure to be a partner with you over the last year and uh, really excited for what's ahead. So um, we're toward the end of the year. Let's, let's see what's ahead for us in 2023. Thanks again. Thank you, Kerry. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.